bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. If Rustin was your first introduction to who Bayard Rustin was, don't feel bad. That's what I'm here for. My name is Travel Anderson. I'm a journalist and author. I do really important work around language and media and culture, visibility, all of the things. I'll be your friendly guide over the next five episodes of Rustin the Podcast, where we answer your burning questions about the man, the movement, and the movie with experts, cast and crew, and other thought leaders that you should be listening to. I promise you, it's gonna be a good key. But one thing you won't have to wait for an answer on is why we don't know Bayard already. Bayard Rustin's historical profile is not as flashy as some of the other historical figures that we really, you know, hold close to our hearts. That's Dr. Marcus Lee. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University, specializing in LGBT studies, Black political history. He's also done a whole lot of research on Bayard Rustin specifically. Bayard Rustin has no bombastic, I have a dream speech or a ballad or the bullet speech, something that's really iconic that you can always point to and say, that's Bayard's thing. There's the March on Washington and these other projects that he was involved in, but he was often behind the scenes, right? So you don't really have these epic moments where he is in the spotlight that one can turn to to herald and say, you know, this is a reflection of this person's importance. Now, I actually met Marcus while we were students at Morehouse College. We were both young, fresh baby gays at the time, really wanted to take over the world. Our campus probably wasn't quite ready for us, but we're going to get more into that later. Now, in case you don't know about Morehouse, it's a historically Black all-male institution. The nation's headquarters for Black male excellence is what we call it. It's got notable alumni, including Academy Award-winning writer-director Spike Lee, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, on-screen legend Samuel Jackson, yours truly. These were Renaissance men, right? They fit a very particular type of image, well-traveled, well-spoken, well-dressed, etc. They represented what Black manhood at its patriarchal peak looks like. And all that history, it created this very specific brand that the college wanted to uphold almost by any means necessary, including enforcing a dress code. One of the tenets of this dress code that was put in place while I was a student was that we could not wear clothing associated with women. That set off a firestorm on campus and in the alumni community partly because portions of this dress code was specifically aimed at queer and femme-presenting students, right? It limited the ways that we could express ourselves, and it begged the question of whether or not a Morehouse man could also be gay. 
In a really interesting way, for all intents and purposes, this dress code was trying to recreate modern students, but in a civil rights era image. Which is interesting when you think about Byad Rustin and the way he showed up. If you look at pictures of Byard at that time, while everyone else looked ready to meet the president, they were casket sharp, Byard looked like he just rolled out of bed sometimes, okay? A little disheveled, hair all over the place, just different than everyone else. That's where we start our journey on Rustin the Podcast, the uniqueness of Byard's look and the fashion of the civil rights movement. Now, I spoke to Tony Leslie James, costume designer for the film, about the political messages behind protest attire and what Byard's look specifically says about him in comparison to all the other leaders at the time. I really enjoyed talking to Tony Leslie. She gave me a lot to think about, and I hope she gives you something to think about as well. To get us started, I'd love for you to take us into a bit of your research process around this particular film. I know, I know you've done a variety of work from a variety of, of periods. So what did the research process look like specifically for Rustin? Well, you know, one of the things I was like thrilled to work on this movie because my parents, particularly my mother, were very involved in politics. And my mother was a war boss. And um, I actually may have been one of the few people who actually knew who Bayard Rustin was. So we generally start with photographs of all the political figures during the time, photographs of Bayard and Martin Luther King, a. Philip Randolph. Uh, we start with the historical photographs, get as much as that as possible, just compiling after we got the historical figures together, all of that research, just compiling a basic um, Bible for me to look at images of clothes going all the way back to the 40s, you know, just so I can look and say, I want a handbag. What does a handbag look like? I got an idea. So let me look at some handbags. You know, stuff like that, just getting into the minutia of it all. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people might think they immediately know, right, what the look of a civil rights era movie should look like based on films that we've already seen, based on some of those historical photos that we've seen. I'm wondering for you, was there anything that you discovered throughout this research process that made you go, oh, this this has to be in the film? Um, perhaps something that that we would not expect is is present there. I'm a, I'm a costume designer. I, I try not to put anything that shouldn't be there for the character on stage or on the screen. Um, so I try to be particularly true to character. I find found out some interesting, you know, 19 men suits details that I didn't know that's happening. It's my tender, like for instance, just something just as minute as that. I'm, you know, for men's sleeves, um, the buttons on men's sleeve, usually three to four buttons on the sleeve. But then I realized, like, I'm looking at all of this um, actual 
rentals that are actual period suits from the 1950s and 60s. And I was like, oh, they only have two buttons. Because first I was like, we're missing buttons. We're missing buttons off all these mm. goddamn suits. But it's like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't have to add buttons. They were two buttons. <laughs> so it was, I discovered different things about men's tailoring that I didn't know, you know, all these years of designing many, many suits. But that was a, that was a fun thing about it. I love that. So I want to talk a little bit about the civil rights movement, specifically from a fashion perspective. In what ways, in your estimation and research, did people use their clothing to, like, communicate whether it was a political message or desires around how they wanted to be seen in society. Black people dress. Mm-hmm. You know, when black people go to a concert, black people dress. <laughs> we dress. When we go to church, we dress. You know, so there's a whole tradition of how we visually maintain ourselves as a culture. Say you look at a protest. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to a protest. I'm going to take a couple big bottle of water, mm-hmm. you know, a baseball cap, great sneakers, and I'll put on a t-shirt and some shorts. You know, for, when you look at the march on Washington, there was not that level of casualness. You know, this is about fighting for a cause, fighting for freedom, but also being seen. And it also goes into the representation of the norm at that time, because we had a duty to present ourselves as part of this ideal society, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. But it meant a lot back in that day. There was always a a level of visual representation with our clothes to 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 show that we belong, that we are important, that we are part of this society, whatever American society is. That's part of the overall cultural, um, visual cultural and clothing history. You know, you wear the clothes of your time. And that was the way we dress and everybody dressed at that particular time in history. Yeah, I feel like one of the ways I often describe it is that like, you know, we were wearing our Sunday's best on Tuesday. Sunday best. You know. Exactly. Because you you had to present. And, and I think young folks today might feel however they feel about the need to comport yourself in 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 a respectable way but back then it was important to have the the kind of sartorial image align with you know what they were aiming to get in terms of various rights and dignities um and whatnot buyer specifically in in this context in terms of what he was wearing you know he wore the suits and whatnot right Right? But they, you know, his shirts were wrinkled. He, the, the tie was loosened up and whatnot. I wonder, based on your research, based on your understanding, what his slight shifts and changes in presentation might have conveyed about who he was or the type of work that he was doing. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. One of the things, um, when you look at photographs of Bayer, 
Um, most of the photographs you see at Bayard, Bayard is always working. He is always working. And he was also comfortable in his skin. You know, there are very few times that you see in a movie, and there are very few um, photographs that you will see of him where everything is really tight. The tie is mm -hmm. tight and everything else. He was always working. So I think that what the historical photographs say to me is this is a man who is driven, but also comfortable with who he is. And you have Bayard when he's at the big meetings, big planning meetings, meeting with A. Philip Randolph, uh, meeting with um, uh, Martin Luther King, um, Adam Clayton Powell. That's the Bayard that we see. That's the official Bayard. That's the Bayard who will have the tie tight, have the jacket on, have everything correct, because he is in a room with a lot of conservative men, be they black or white, that's the uniform. So he's portraying himself in the uniform. Then you see Bayer when he is at work. The jacket comes off, the tie is loosened, the sleeves are rolled, and that's when we see, more frequently we see a photograph of him without a jacket than we do on. That's Bayard at work. Then you have the Bayard who is the leader and who has put together this team of young activist. And that's where you see him loosen up a little bit more. You know, the jacket's off. Not always. Everybody has a different outfit according to where they need to show up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I, I really appreciate about the film is is being able to see Bayard at home um, and what he might wear at home, especially since so many of the historical photos that you do see is of him working. It's of him in a, in a suit. Um, so it was really wonderful being able to to see some of that. One of the things we noticed, you know, about the film was that so many of the other costumes are super vibrant, in, particularly for the younger characters um, in the mm -hmm. film. I wonder how you think about color um, as, as kind of its own element in in the story that we we get in this movie. First of all, you have a bunch of men in suits. And suits only come in certain colors or, you know, not really. But, you know, we weren't we weren't doing hot pink and we weren't doing disco suits and platform suits. You know, we, we have this this group of men and we're in a lot of meetings. We're with a lot of people we're in politicians and we're in a, a gray suit, blue suit, black suit, you know, brown suit, brown suits. At the time, brown suit world. And so we want to show the contrast from the conservative view of these men who are important to the vibrancy of the spirit of the group. These are a bunch of young people. Nobody's dressing wild. Nobody's dressing funky. But that's where it was our chance to introduce color in the clothing. You know, the the team offices that um, are in Harlem or that we represented in Pittsburgh in Harlem. And those walls are, we have a lot of, you know, dark gray, olive uh, textures. Mm -hmm. So... Basically, the clothing was initiated not to overwhelm, but to 
pop out from that so we can get the vibrancy of the team within that particular room. And it's the same with um, Bayard's apartment because he was an incredible collector and they did a beautiful job of recreating his Mm -hmm. apartment in Chelsea. But a lot of that, um, a lot of African wooden statues, late 17th century to mid to mid to late 19th century paintings, but heavy. He was a worldly man, but a lot of that stuff in that apartment was dark. And so once again, we try to introduce color to rise up from that. I, I wonder, are there any, you know, costuming moments in the film that you're particularly proud of, you know, that you think audiences should should keep an eye out on? It's the scene when Bayer goes to visit Martin and Coretta is there with the kids and it's the and they're singing and they're marching around the table and then Martin comes in and everything else. I mean that that whole sequence I felt felt like me. You know, really felt like, really felt like what I had to contribute because, um, and I talked to George about it because every photograph that you would see of King and the family and their home was, it was a photo shoot, right? Mm -hmm. It was a, a Vogue photo shoot or a life photo shoot. So everything and, and, and. I wanted to make sure that it did not, George wanted to make sure also, wanted to make sure that it didn't have that photo shoot that you don't walk into the house and mm-hmm. it's a photo shoot where she has on the earrings and the pearls and the hair is manicured and the kids are all, you know, gleaming and, you know, oiled up. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like this is a time when you want to show a little ash. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, like <laughs> I mean, but, but like when someone would come to your house, yeah, you know, with your parents, and it's a, and the, and the kids are all around, and there's you know, somebody has a snotty nose, and somebody's like eating a play doh, and somebody's painting, you know, at the table. So it, it was, I felt about that, and then. Martin comes in from going on a task. You know, he's 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 not going to a meeting and everything else. And I wanted him to come in dressed casually because we never see him like that in the movie. Mm-hmm. We never see. It was the one one time when he comes to these people, totally unexpected. They're not expecting him, and they're at home once again in their, you know, in their environment, in their intimate space. And I thought it was important to convey that. Mm-hmm. I wonder what 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 were some of those details that you used, particularly with like Coretta and the kids, that that allowed you know kind of that to come across in that scene. It's called. Dripping her down, you know, it's called it's called letting Coretta be Coretta and, and like be in like a cotton dress. We mm-hmm. talked about it. He said all the photographs that I've seen uh, Coretta, you know, her, 
her hair stops here. And then, oh, you know, and then a lot of times when we see in her movies, <laughs> her hair is down there, you know, and it's like, it's like she always looks, she's so beautiful, which she, she was a tremendously, I mean, incredibly beautiful woman. I mean, with so much charisma. I mean, even more so, you know, to, to Martin, to me. Uh, but it, it was a point for her not to be a fashion model. Does she look great at the march? Yes, she looks great, you know, great pair of sunglasses, everything done in it. But it's the part to to humanize her where she doesn't always look like she's ready for a photo shoot. Um, photo shoot. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in talking about that scene with Coretta and the kids, um, humanizing her in particular through what she was wearing and how she was comported. I think that also is is similar to what we see with with Bayard, right? In terms of getting a look into his his personal life outside of um, the cameras and the organizing. Why is it important to, to you in particular to humanize these particular figures in, in, in the way that you do? Because they're real people. They're important parts of the the lives of everybody in the United States, particularly us as Black people, particularly Mm -hmm. African-Americans. And, you know, um, there's been a lot, a lot of movies and a lot of TV movies, a lot of feature films. I mean, incredible feature films made of these people. You know, this is our film. And, you know, you don't want to keep trotting out people as statues, as icons, there's some mm. flaws. You know, we all have some flaws um, in, in our clothing and the way we dress. And so it's it's like embracing the flaws. With that, thank you so much, Tony Leslie James, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Special thanks to Tony Leslie James, head costume designer on the film. One thing that she said that has stuck with me was being able to recognize the flaws in our icons. We are certainly going to be doing that here on this podcast, but you have to wait for it. The official Rustin podcast is a production of Netflix, Pineapple Street Studios, and Slejean. It's produced by Corey Antonio Rose, and our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. The podcast is mixed by Hannes Brown with fact-checking by Dina Kleiner. Special thanks to Josh Gwynn. Gabrielle Lewis is the executive producer at Pineapple Street. From Netflix, our executive producer is David Markowitz. And then you have me, Trayvell Anderson from Slejean, as executive producer and host. 